This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we're going to talk to a former special agent of the FBI, John Peterson, who worked for 10 years in the FBI's Counterintelligence Bureau, is going to talk about an arrest that took place a couple decades ago here in our sleepy little college town of Davis, which um, was the closing chapter in uh, folding up one of the most important espionage rings of the entire Cold War history. And uh, yeah, it may surprise you to think that happened right here in Davis, but it did. And we're going to talk to John Peterson about that in segment two. Let us begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History. On this date in history, which would be October 19th, in the year 1781, the hopelessly trapped British general, Lord Cornwallis, surrendered 8,000 British troops and seamen to a larger Franco-American force. Lord Cornwallis's surrender at Yorktown, Virginia, effectively brought an end to the American Revolutionary War. And if you think about it, it would make a lot more sense to celebrate today, October 19th, as the date of American independence rather than July 4th. We do have to admit, though, this time of year, picnics and parades are quite a bit more problematic. On October 19, 1812, one month after Napoleon Bonaparte's massive invading force entered a burning and deserted Moscow, the starving French army, which was the largest European military force ever assembled to that date, began its disastrous retreat from Russia. Napoleon, lacking a coherent exit strategy, lost more than 400,000 of his troops. Here's the one I really find amazing. One year later, in 1813, Napoleon Bonaparte loses the Battle of Leipzig, along with some 68,000 men killed or captured and lost his imperial holdings east of the Rhine River. The part I find so amazing is that after his disastrous Russian campaign, the French trust Bonaparte with an army to lose again. And of course, it wouldn't be over till Waterloo, which I think was in 1815. And on a happier note, on this date, October 19, 1954, the Himalayan peak Cho Oyu, one of the world's 14 peaks higher than 8,000 meters, was climbed for the first time. I know that's not of great import, but I would note that on a trip to Nepal, I had a chance to see Choi Oyu from one of the valleys below the peak, and it is indeed a spectacular mountain. Our quote of the day comes from Albert Einstein, who once said, In theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, they are not. Our quip of the day comes from Jay Leno, who noted a week or so ago on The Tonight Show that the Senate Intelligence Committee has released a report saying there's no evidence that Saddam Hussein had a relationship with al-Qaeda. Thank God we found that out now before we did something crazy. Our statistic of the day is $12 million. That's the amount the Democratic National Committee says it plans to spend on the midterm elections next month. Oh, that's part A. Part B is $60 million. That's the amount the Republican National Committee says it will spend. If their national committees are correct, the Republicans are going to outspend the Dems 5 to 1. Actually, here's a somewhat related stat, which I think we can't pass up for today's show. 
According to a poll by the University of Maryland, 71% of Iraqis approve attacks on U.S. forces. That was a poll taken earlier this month. Last January, it was 47%. In a State Department uh, poll recently conducted, two-thirds of Iraqis felt they would be safer if U.S. forces left immediately. In response, State Department spokesman Sean McCormick would not comment except to say that anecdotal evidence suggests Iraqis appreciate our presence there. We don't have a proper joke of the day for today's programs, but we would note some curious anagrams we came across. Normally, we're not huge fans of puns, palindromes, anagrams, etc., but a couple of these weren't too bad. If you rearrange a decimal point, you can get I'm a dot in place. If you change the letters in slot machines, you get cash lost in me. The Morse code can be arranged to here come dots. But my personal favorite is you can take election results and by anagram form lies. Let's recount. All right, let's go to the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine this week, it was a good week for official clarification after Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, decreed that masturbation is permissible during Ramadan as long as the act is not intentional. And I'm sure that's a relief on a lot of people's minds. Because, you know, as we all know, sometimes things just happen. The magazine noted that last week was a bad week for Saddam Hussein after a 60 Minutes investigation found that the deposed dictator's name was on the federal no-fly list. Also likely to encounter problems during check-in are 14 of the 19 September 11th hijackers who, though deceased, are on the list for their documented history of in-flight misbehavior. And my personal favorite, it apparently was an ugly week last week for just following orders. After an 80-year-old German motorist drove through a motorway barrier, a construction site, and into a pile of sand because his Mercedes onboard navigation system told him to. And let's include the Only America file from, uh, from this section. According to The Week, libraries in Levy County, Florida, are now on the verge of collapse thanks to a new policy requiring drug testing of elderly volunteers. The library system usually has 55 volunteers between the ages of 60 and 85 checking out and reshelving books. But thanks to a new requirement that all county workers urinate into a plastic cup within earshot of a lab employee, only two volunteers are left. It's not like we're a high-risk group for coming in drunk or high or stoned on whatever, said one former volunteer. Why are we spending tax money to test 75-year-old grandmothers for marijuana? And that's a question we at Radio Parallax do not have an answer for.
From the mailbag, we have an article sent by Lisa in response to our uh, questioning of what was going on in North Korea on last week's program. They had not confirmed that there was indeed a nuclear blast. They they did do that earlier this week. Apparently, um, the planes they sent into the airspace near North Korea did pick up, pick up some radioactive markers indicating that there had been some sort of nuclear test. The article noted that uh, that uh, forensic seismology came about uh, at the time of a one to two kiloton explosion, which took place in Port Chicago down on the Sacramento River south of here. At that time, a shipload of munitions accidentally exploded and, la- and laid waste to the port facilities and, and left no trace of the ship and 320 sailors. Port Chicago is uh, down near Antioch. It's basically just a dock at this point. Uh, um, but it wasn't too far from the University of California at Berkeley, where the seismic signals were then examined uh, by people, well, the Navy particularly was interested in knowing just exactly when the explosion took place. Apparently, it's very easy to distinguish an atomic blast from an earthquake, but uh, when it's a small blast, small being like one kiloton, it's hard to distinguish between conventional explosives and a small nuclear device. In this case, uh, there was some ambiguity in the data about the North Korean explosion, which is estimated to be at half a kiloton. By way of reference, the Hiroshima bomb was about 13 kilotons. This article notes that if you skip ahead to 2001, there were two forensic seismologic home runs when seismic stations uh, up in um, the Baltic were able to confirm that the mysterious sinking five months earlier of the Russian submarine Kursk was indeed due to an explosion on board the submarine, not from a collision with another vessel, as uh, the Russians had darkly hinted might have happened with an American attack sub. Also in 2001, the University of Arizona was able to confirm that uh, reports by an Iraqi informant who said that Saddam Hussein had successfully tested a 10-kiloton nuclear weapon under Lake Rosara, 90 miles south of Baghdad, uh, were false. The uh, seismologic data showed no evidence of any such blast. So the best evidence would suggest that the North Koreans did set off a nuclear device. It apparently was something of a dud. At least that's what some speculate, that had it gone off correctly, it would have been a bigger bang. Uh, I don't know that much about how to set off a nuclear explosion, but I do know that the Trinity test in New Mexico in 1945, the world's first atomic blast, used plutonium, which is what they're saying uh, the North Koreans were going to use. A plutonium bomb is apparently quite a bit trickier than an A-bomb made of, uh, of uranium, but it does have the advantage of not having to enrich all that natural uranium to make it uh, the bomb-grade substance, which is, you know, contains quite a bit more U-235 than U-238. And it's at moments like this I do remind myself that we are a university radio station. Anyway, what people are going to do about this device, whether it was a bit of a dud or whatever, uh, what the world's going to do about this, well, we're going to follow with, with the rest of you. Point, we would like to point to an article by Eric Rosenberg in the Hearst newspapers of October 6th, noting that uh, Pentagon experts are pointing out that if we use conventional bombs to take out uh, atomic targets in North Korea or Iran, it could unwittingly spark an atomic exchange between Russia and the United States. There's been a plan to put conventional warheads aboard our submarines that normally can carry uh, atomic weapon-tipped missiles. 
But it's been pointed out that the launch of such missiles might be misinterpreted by the Russians, who have no way of distinguishing, you know, what's on the top of the missile uh, whose launch they pick up. Russian President Vladimir Putin has already warned about the dangers of, of this program. And so now, the, uh, now they're talking about using intercontinental ballistic missiles instead. The article noted that accidental nuclear war is not so far-fetched. In 1995, Russia initially interpreted the launch of a Norwegian scientific rocket as the onset of a U.S. nuclear attack. Then President Boris Yeltsin activated his nuclear briefcase in the first stages of preparation to launch a retaliatory strike before the mistake was discovered. This, of course, underscores why it's important to have good intelligence information when you're making important decisions. Something we'll, of course, refer to again in segment two, talking about uh, spies in the Cold War. And speaking of communists, it's this, uh, it's this program's belief that Fidel Castro might actually be a lot sicker than is being let on. We, we judge this from the fact that Raul Castro, earlier this week, dismissed a report that his older brother is dying. An article in Time magazine quoted U.S. intelligence officials saying Fidel Castro was suffering from terminal stomach cancer. But Raul Castro, Cuba's acting president, insisted that Fidel is constantly getting better. He is not dying like some in Miami are saying. We remain very suspicious, however, that uh, Fidel Castro, now 80 years of age, he's not been seen in public since July 26th, underwent unspecified abdominal surgery earlier uh, that month, is um, probably a really sick man. And the fact that they were referring to his stomach as being operated on uh, does, make, uh, does make this correspondence suspicious that it might be gastric cancer. Although we're not big fans of the Miami anti-Castro community, we certainly do agree with them that uh, Cuba's going to be a better place when the Castro brothers are gone and um, the communist government folds up its tent. And we can't resist at this point interjecting that old line about the fact that, you know, these days about the only place you can find a communist government is North Korea, Cuba, and the Berkeley City Council. All right, for our final two items of this segment, we have, first of all, a correction. We stated on this program uh, some weeks ago that under the Bush administration's uh, faith-based initiative charity program that um, 100% of the money had gone to Christian or Jewish charities and none to any others. We stand corrected. According to the Boston Globe, 98.3% of the $1.7 billion in federal funds awarded to religious organizations have gone to Christian groups, okay? 98.3. Jewish organizations got 1%. So we were incorrect in saying that 100% of the funds had gone to Jewish and Christian groups. The real figure is only 99.3%. The Boston Globe did note that Muslim organizations got 0.34% of the funds, while interfaith groups got 0.16%. And final item from the good news file, according to the Chicago Tribune, Spain's interest in bullfighting is waning, especially among young people. Polls show that 70% of Spaniards have no interest in bullfighting, up from 40% in 1970. Arenas are now often half empty. To this we say, bravo.
Let's take a short break and then come back and talk to John Peterson of the FBI. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 